This episode is brought to you by R1RCM, a leading provider of technology-driven solutions that transform the financial performance of hospitals, health systems, and medical groups. R1 delivers proven, scalable operating models that power sustainable improvements to net patient revenue while reducing operating costs. To learn how you can build a future-ready revenue cycle today, visit us at www.r1rcm.com beckers. Hello, and welcome to the Becker's Hospital Review podcast. My name is Will Riley from R1RCM. With me in the podcast studio today is Doug Pogue. Doug is president of BJC Medical Group at BJC Healthcare. Doug, welcome. Thanks, Will. Great to be with you today. Thank you. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Before we start, though, would you mind introducing yourself to us and tell us a little bit about you and BJC? Oh, sure. Happy to. So I'm a primary care physician. I uh, trained way back in the dark ages in uh, Washington University. Uh, in the early 90s, and then spent some time on the East Coast, uh, but have been back with BJC uh, since 1999, mostly as a primary care physician. I was really passionate about the impact of primary care in the community and spent a long time doing that, and then founded our accountable care organization in 2012, started to move into kind of managing the organization in 2016, and I've been the president of BJC's medical group, which is the employed physician platform uh, ever since 2017. BJC is a really um, uh, interesting and exciting organization to be with. It's you know we're we're 14 hospitals and about 600 providers, but about two million people or so are in our overall Epic database. A million of those we'll see every year, and so really one in three people who live in the greater St. Louis, uh, Missouri, and Illinois area uh, see somebody in our medical group or in our hospitals. And so we've been it's just been an exciting place from a medical care standpoint, from a social impact standpoint, to uh, to work over the last 24 years. Perfect. Thank you so much, Doug. We're going to talk today about some of the big issues, challenges facing healthcare providers as we head into 2024. Um, we'll start with a nice easy one around payer relations. Oh, yes, right. <laughs> um, it seems like it's an area that's always been a challenge, of mm -hmm. course. There's a negotiation, there's a relationship, different organizations with different outcomes in mind, mm -hmm. although united, hopefully, around the patient. Right. But um it also seems like a, an area that's become more difficult in the last couple of years and a little more contentious. Yeah. Are you seeing that play out? I, I really do agree with that. In our market in and around St. Louis, we've had a, a change that I think is is uh, not for the better, which is that during the, the last 10 years previous to the pandemic, um, uh, insurance companies were increasingly working with me. I run our accountable care organization, so a lot of the value-based care initiatives and those kind of things. And we we saw um, payers increasingly coming to the table and saying, hey, how can we work for, with you? We'd love for you to take some of the risk, but also produce some of the value. Maybe there's a win-win in this for both of us. And we were starting to have conversations and initially contracts uh, building, particularly from 2015 to 2020, on on how to do this together. Just how do we, how do we hold hands as a, a provider and a payer and jump together into something you know, with a, a high degree of trust of each other. I think the trauma of the pandemic um, caused people to kind of recede a little bit into their corners um, in the sense that when there's a lot of financial uh, constraints, you know, a lot of healthcare systems are, went underwater and um, you know, the chief financial officers are asking me about how, how much volume can you bring? And, and after that, you know, can, is there more volume that you might have in the tank? You know, mm -hmm. It's really a recession into the fee-for-service dry volume through your chassis. 
kind of mindset and the pay on the payer side, increasingly, yeah, they're, they they want to talk about unit costs. They really don't want to talk about kind of advanced or complicated, you know, shared risk arrangements or things like that. And so, um, so we've seen the payers really kind of recede back, at least in our market from that kind of, Hey, let's figure out how to work together and, and do something in a joint way with joint risk. Um, interestingly, into the middle of that, which was unexpected, is the employers are stepping in saying, hey, do you have a value-based care plan? Because we would love someone to come in and help us actively manage our employee health and give us a different outcome, a different solution, healthy employees or employees that if they get injured, go back to work faster. And um, and how do you maybe save on our costs? Because this whole 8 to 10% you know, year over year increase in the premiums is killing us. We can't, we can't handle that. So health system, do you have a solution that could help us? So, so it's been an interesting dynamic that the, the, the traditional payers are starting to move away from us a little bit on value-based care, but the employers uh, that are self-funded, they want all in. And so that's been an interesting dynamic. Can the employer help bring the, the, bring it all together? Do you think? I think they can because the, the um, health systems like ours are not experienced at large scale, health insurance plan management, right? It's not what we're good at. It's not what we do. And the employers aren't any better at it either. So they still need someone who's good at that, you know, a payer that is really professional and can bring in the right systems and scale to help them manage all of this. But they just want a different relationship. They want a different kind of set of expectations and outcomes. And I think as we've been able to have some of these conversations, we've been able to customize some things for them that that really make sense for their workforce and their workforce's needs. And, and, the, and the plans are able to say, okay, well, I'll be the third party administrator. You guys hold the risk. I don't hold the risk as the administrator. You guys hold the risk. Mm. And, but then this is an interesting idea. So why don't we let you guys play this out? We'll help you with uh, the things that we do well. And I think they're, they're in a wait and see approach to see, does this actually move the needle or not on cost and on, uh, on quality? It's, it sounds like otherwise um, this sort of post-COVID economy retrenchment has been a, a real setback to value-based care initiatives in general. Yeah, I, I think so. It's it's people still, they need the cost savings and they need the outcomes. Certainly the patients want the outcomes and their expectations about what we can do are, are rising. Um, at the same time then, um, um, yeah, I think I think when people are stressed and the money's tight, everybody pulls back and we're, that's what we're seeing in our market. Let's, let's move on and talk a little bit about a, a byproduct of some of this uh, challenge, um, which is we're seeing across our clients an increase in denials um, from payers, uh, commercial payers, and a slowdown in payment times as well, actually, which is hurting health system finances at a time when they don't have a lot lot to fall back on. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you seeing that same thing play out at BJC too? We are. And there's, there's really two aspects of that that are very different from each other. One on the more standard denials, there are a lot of um, uh, you know, s- kind of steps you have to go through, key words that have to be in the patient chart to document certain conditions and the severity of those conditions and the need for surgery, the step edits of have you done certain things before you're going to this next step, which is under review or under a payment restriction. And um, during the pandemic, there was a lot of relief from some of that. And so our physicians and some of our managers all kind of got away from the discipline of really checking all the boxes and making sure they've got it all right before they order something or submit something. And I think now that that's all snapped back, everyone's relearning that, oh, yes, we have to pay attention to that. We've really got to you know, do the due diligence around that. I think the payers are ahead of us and that they have often software tools and other things which can screen the medical record automatically for things and then analyze it. On the provider side, we've not that's not what we've been focused on for the last three or four years during the pandemic. And so, 
So how we do the same thing to help help our teams just get better at making sure you've done everything you're supposed to do. And if there's a gap, if there's a miss, well, then let's fix that gap before we start to order a surgery or, or ask for a treatment that's a really high cost treatment or something like that. Separate from that, I think in the managed uh, Medicare space and some of the other spaces, we're seeing an increase in companies say, hey, um, let's let's try to figure out how to not allow post-hospital care of any kind. So going to inpatient rehab, to skilled nursing facilities, home health, things like that, we've seen just a sharp intake, uh, uptick in um, um, in plans, just absolutely saying no, 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 no. And, and they're playing the game beautifully, right? Because they know, and it's true, that that on the other side, in our hospital and the hospitals, I'm sure all over the country, there are very responsible, pe responsible people who are not going to let this patient, if they really feel solidly that they need this help and they're not going to be okay at home, they're not going to send them home. Mm -hmm. So what happens is they stay in our hospital day after day after day while we have this argument that goes on about whether they're going to get there. By the time um, uh, you get into five, six, seven additional days in the hospital, guess what? The patient's actually gotten better because they've been getting therapy the whole time they've been in our hospital. And so they have improved as we expected that they would with therapy. And so now they're ready to go home. And so the plan feels vindicated. See, they didn't need the therapy, um, and we were right to we were right to not not uh, approve it. And at the same time, our costs have now tripled because they've spent an extra week in the hospital and and gotten therapy because that's what they're supposed to have. Right. Um, but uh, we weren't able to transition that when we needed to, and so it uh, it just has been difficult because the health systems are taking the cost, the plans are getting a benefit, and fortunately, I think most hospitals are ensuring the patient gets good care, not just dumping them home. But, you know, it's uh, it's not been a great game because it, it erodes trust between the plan and the provider as to sure. how are we working together for the sake of the patient. And how, how do you, as a physician group leader, how do you bring the physician organization along with you on this? Because obviously there's a burden on them. Uh, they come to you and say, my job is to take care of the patient and make the right clinical decisions. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you provide them with the encouragement support they need to play yeah. their part in all of this yeah, as well. well. And that's, that's exactly where I start. I start with, we have to own our part of it. Our part of it mm -hmm. is know what the rules are, know what the guidelines are, making sure that we've done everything we're supposed to do and have documented that clearly in the patient mm -hmm. chart. So that as that record becomes, you know, the, the way that everyone's making a decision in this, in this area, um, that it's clear, you know, that, that we have not, we're not falling down on our side by not providing the right care. And um, the other thing is we're pushing a lot of standards. You know, how do we how do we have more discipline discharge planning, for instance, and and checks and balances through the hospitalizations so that when they leave, it's been very clear on us exactly the standard process that everyone's followed. We're ensured that we've done everything right. And then you have no you have a. Uh, um, um, you know, you're, you're, you feel like you're safe and solid to, to argue with the plan that it's, it really is important that this patient transition to the next stage because you've done all the work, not just because, you know, I, as the physician, you know, say so or something right, like that. Right. right so right. It, it moves it from the, the personal opinion stage to the, um, to the discipline process stage. And that's what we can own. And everything after that, you know, the plans will have to own up to the agreements that they've got with us. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Let's mm -hmm. shift gears slightly and talk a little bit about the regulatory landscape, mm -hmm. um, ever-changing, um, patchwork, uh, local, national regulation. We're entering election season, which seems to up the ante a little bit on rhetoric, at least. Right. Um, so how do you try and stay ahead of that environment as well? 
two things. Um, so one from uh, just understanding um, kind of what's happening in the state houses of the two states that we operate in, we've got long-term um, um, government relations teams that have honestly been in place for probably 15 or 16 years by now. So the same people that have long-term relationships with many folks there. So we can, we can have, you know, kind of a, a credible, transparent relationship to have some kind of voice into the process as people are considering different kinds of regulations. So on the front end, we try to be really good as, as thought partners and as just um, kind of advisors to, to governmental yeah. folks, many of whom are not from healthcare and don't really understand the, the small details sure. of what's being asked in some of these regula regulatory you know, proposals. Um, so we try to help them be good partners on the front end. When regulations happen, you know, you just have to keep the patient in the center and make sure it's a how. It's not a, you know, we can't say, well, we can't do something anymore because of the regulation. It's like, okay, well, if the patient needs something. How do we get that done? And how do we adjust ourselves to, to work around whatever we need to do, be compliant and and um, uh, and do everything according, according to the laws of the locality that we're working in, um, but get it done for the patient so the patient gets the care that they need. So we're, we're trying to stay flexible on the back end, but we've learned that, that if you have good long-term relationships and trusting relationships with both state houses uh, on the front end, then you can, you can help a lot in terms of informing the process so the regulations actually are functional when they come out and don't create kind of weird uh, loopholes or something that would, would cause a harm to patient care. Benefit of being proactive, basically. Yeah, yeah I see. Let's end by talking a little bit about the patient. Yeah. Um, obviously, at the heart of everything here. Uh, but the patient has changed a lot in the last 10 years. Uh, maybe not clinically, or maybe clinically, I don't know. But yeah. um, in terms of the expectations they bring mm -hmm. to for their healthcare experience, whether that's technology or, or whatever it is, really. Um, t t tell us a little bit about how you've seen patient experiences, uh, patient expectations change. Yeah, the patient expectations have changed a lot. They'll They'll order something on Amazon this afternoon and is scheduled to come tomorrow. And then they go on, go on our website and they'd love to make an appointment for next week for their physical. And they have the expectation that those websites will work about the same and that availability is, is very much there. And, and uh, what they, what they need, they can get, you know, like for instance, how many, how many hours will it take to, uh, until my prescription's ready at the pharmacy, you know, maybe an overstatement. They may just say, we'll it be ready in 45 minutes from now if the doctor calls, mm -hmm. you know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So, um, so expectations are changing. Everyone is having um, a challenge, I think, meeting those expectations. But it's it's a really, really important place to be, because if we're if we're trying to um, take the industry and advance it, and in particular, if we're trying to take cost out of it, there are lots of things where these expectations, I think, are going to force us to uh, automate and mechanize in ways that are are really for the good of the patient. That really do speed up efficiency and allow us to maintain our costs at a reasonable level. So I, I think it's a good pressure to have um, uh, for the organization to constantly be measuring this kind of patient satisfaction, patient expectations, and figuring out how do we how do we adjust. And we've taken that really seriously. Just my just my medical group, uh, we've got about 600 providers or so. And in 19, I'm sorry, in 2018, we had 23 people. Uh, physicians who were in the top decile of, of PRC, which is a, a kind of a patient satisfaction company that we use at their national and uh, one of the big ones. But um, we had 23 people who were in the top 10% of their database in terms of their patient satisfaction rates. That actually alarmed us enough that we started to change things a lot with what we do and how we do it. Today, we have over 200 of my providers that are in that top 10% of the country. And so, so just understanding the patient, measuring, you know, asking for their feedback, mm -hmm. doing something about it when they tell you, 
and and systematically trying to improve the process, it really does allow you to have a different kind of relationship with your patients over time. The patients appreciate it, and at least they tell us on our surveys that that we're getting better, and that's really the important thing. I think it's an interesting, I think you're right. I mean, using technology to help you understand patient needs, whether that's from the way they're interacting with you or just straight up asking them mm-hmm. is uh, is 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 amazing, right? You're you're not dependent on paper surveys and right. things like that anymore. Yeah. You know, the feel re- feedback is real time. Yeah, uh, mail this in a month from now. The kind of yeah, yeah right. it's, it's hard to service recover like that. If someone says <laughs> yeah. they stuck you three times to get your blood. I want to know that the next day so I can call the person. You know, it's that kind of thing. Let's end with a quick comment from you, if I may, Doug, on how your um, ensuring that the most vulnerable populations in your area are getting access to healthcare. Can you tell us a little bit about the safety net strategy at BJC? Yeah, we've got a, we've got a couple things that we're doing that I think uh, it's not enough, but it's it's where we're starting and, and we're starting to work through it. So one on the on the uh, provision of service side, we've actually found that as we build our virtual care uh, and telehealth type of services that that expands uh, access rapidly because so many of our folks in underprivileged kind of communities have transportation problems. Mm. So if we can take the transportation issue out and actually allow them to connect without having to drive or take a bus or those kind of things, then that helps uh, the number of times that they keep the appointment and get the care that they need. We've also actually, for our accountable care organization, we've hired a transportation company. We don't own our, all our own vans or anything like that, but we simply hire out to this company that will go and pick patients up for us. And so for folks that are really frail and brittle, that for our accountable care organization, we know that, you know, that bad things happen when they don't, you know, show up. We we pick them up. We just and we just pay for it. You know, it's just one of those things. And because we have a global budget in our accountable care organization, that's how we fund it uh, through the shared savings we get overall mm-hmm. in those budgets. Um, the other thing that's very indirect but has been very impactful is we've said, okay, hey, where are the communities that are just um, really economically depressed and, and have a hard time kind of changing the economic reality that we know then contributes to all these social determinants of health and said, okay, well, we've got a lot of money that we have to keep in reserve, right? We're a healthcare company. You know, we have to have days of cash on hand and all those kinds of things, right? Well, there's no reason we need to park that in New York or Chicago, and so, um, so we found banks that are high quality banks, conservative, but they're in the middle of these communities. And we say, hey, here's a hundred million dollars. It's just part of, we're just banking with you. We're not doing anything special, we're just banking, but you now have a hundred million dollar infusion that you as a bank that lives in these communities and serves that community can then go do that to, to make loans, to do the things that banks do to help empower the local community to start the process of spinning the cycle towards improvement. And we're not dictating anything about how that happens, but you, you know, you as a, as a dedicated community bank that's there, you're going to figure that out with your clients, how best to do that. And we're just going to simply deposit stuff there to help you kind of have the capital that you need to, to let that flow. And so stuff like that, that, that we're starting to do that's just different, mm-hmm. you know, for a healthcare mm-hmm. company, um, yeah. we think it's going to have an impact over time. For sure. Doug, that's a that's a great way to end. It's uplifting and uh, and hopeful. So thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us today. No, thank you. It's been terrific. Thank you.